little survey study of the book of Exodus, looking at some of the great themes that are developed in this second book of the Old Testament. And our attention these last few weeks has been on the theme of Israel's worship and that focusing around the uh, construction and the service of the Lord at the tabernacle. We've discussed something of the basic structure of the tabernacle, looked at the essential elements of the uh, furniture, and last week we had made our way directly into that most restricted place, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, and the lone piece of furniture there being the Ark of the Covenant. And we want to pick it up uh, there, just a couple more things that I want to say about the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, this was the central piece, the climactic piece, uh, that was the great sacramental object lesson uh, of the presence of God with His people. The entire tabernacle was teaching that lesson that God would dwell with His people. Uh, but of all of those uh, specific parts of the tabernacle that conveyed that overall message of God's presence with His people. I say the climactic uh, declaration of that was the Ark of the Covenant. This little box uh, overlaid with gold with the cherubim over uh, spreading the top of that box, the atoning lid, uh, the mercy seat, which literally is the atoning lid, uh, that was placed on the top of that box. Inside the box uh, were the testaments of the law, the copies of the Ten Commandments, uh, and then for a while as well, not consistently, but for a period of time, uh, also a pot of manna uh, and the uh, rod of Aaron that budded, uh, confirming and establishing his priesthood uh, before the Lord and in behalf of the people. Now, uh, I was drawing last time some of the general lessons that we want to see from uh, the ark. Uh, we said something about the sovereignty of God. Uh, the fact that uh, it was overlaid with gold speaks certainly of the majesty uh, and the glory of God. It's not without significance that as other writers later uh, develop and play upon this ark theology, uh, that they view this in terms of the throne of God. Uh, they refer to it as the footstool uh, of the Lord. All of those are expressions and terms that designate the absolute kingship and royalty and sovereignty uh, of our God, uh, teaching us there at the very uh, surface that if we are going to be in God's presence, uh, we must submit ourselves to that one who is uh, the absolute king. We are in the presence of a king. Uh, it speaks also of the holiness of God, and that was the point that we were making concerning the cherubim. Uh, the cherubim, with their wings overspreading, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, were always, uh, in the Old Testament, the guardians and the proclaimers of the holiness uh, of God. Uh, and a very foreboding sight, therefore, here is this Ark, and uh, immediately were uh, these images of the cherubim. Uh, as a testimony that God is a holy God and those that approach then into this presence of God uh, must do so with caution, uh, must do so with the necessary holiness apart from which obviously no men and no man can ever see uh, the Lord. So that was a foreboding sight, uh, but it did declare uh, that absolute holiness uh, of the Lord. Uh, the righteousness of God, certainly, 
uh, testified by the uh, tablets of the uh, law that were located and kept within uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Those Ten Commandments, the summary statement of God's moral law and God's moral requirements that we've been considering here in these opening uh, moments in the Sunday School for some time now, uh, there they were. And they cried for that absolute uh, conformity. Uh, righteousness, great term in the Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, the basic significance of that term righteousness is straightness as it relates to a uh, measurement of straightness, conformity to a standard, if you will. Uh, and it requires an absolute conformity. So here is this law of God that demands a perfect and total uh, obedience if there is to be that access uh, into the presence of God. And again, that was a very foreboding uh, message. Uh, for what man is there that can keep uh, that law of God perfectly? And so long as that box, as it were, had the lid off, uh, there was the demand for that obedience and for that perfect righteousness if there was to be access uh, into God's presence. So it speaks of the uh, righteousness of God, uh, the provision of God. We talked a little bit about the pot of manna that was there, a constant reminder of God's daily uh, provision for the people, uh, that they were not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. Uh, the manna spoke highly. Uh, and loudly of the faithfulness of God uh, in providing for his people. Uh, and the uh, rod of Aaron that was there as well, God's provision for a perfect mediation. Uh, how is it that sinful men can make their way to God? Uh, well, there's a great lesson here that there is no approach to God uh, by men apart from a mediator. Uh, and it is the mediator of God's choosing. Uh, remember again the circumstances in which Aaron's rod budded uh, the Levites and now particularly the house of Aaron chosen to be this mediating priesthood. Uh, and others of the Levites thought they uh, were just as qualified uh, to do that work. Uh, and so the Lord says, we'll see. Bring all uh, the tribes and representatives of the tribes. Put your rod here and then the rod that budded is that one that uh, I have chosen. And it was Aaron's rod that budded. A uh, great miraculous demonstration certainly. Uh, but it was a confirmation uh, that God chooses the way uh, of mediation, the chosen mediator. Now, that certainly is an object lesson, but for us uh, and for them, a great prophecy, picture prophecy uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that one and only mediator through whom and by whom uh, men have any approach unto God. Uh, beautiful object lessons here. Well, that I think we covered last week. Now, the thing that we want to... Uh, climax here, then, is our attention upon the mercy seat. Uh, over this little box was placed the atoning lid, uh, translated in the authorized version as the mercy seat. Uh, and it covered uh, that box, and it was the place when on the Day of Atonement, uh, on that one time of the year when the high priest was allowed, uh, indeed commanded by God, to enter into that place behind the veil, uh, with the blood that was sacrificed by uh, the slain goat. He took that blood in and sprinkled that blood upon the mercy seat. Uh, and a picture then of the atonement, of the propitiation uh, that was so required uh, if there was to be any access, if there was to be this entrance in uh, to the very presence uh, of God. And it's a beautiful picture. 
Uh, and I emphasize that that was not the reality. I've been trying to keep this before you, that all of this in the Old Testament uh, context here, in this mosaic context, were divinely uh, defined object lessons that were uh, purposed by God to point beyond themselves uh, to the reality uh, which ultimately is the work in the person uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what a beautiful picture this was. I say when the box is open, there is the law calling for our death. You must die. But now the lid is put on that box and the blood is put upon uh, that mercy seat as a, uh, as a picture of the propitiation uh, that is required if there is to be uh, acceptance uh, before the Lord. Uh, beautiful picture. Now, uh, let me expand my, my comments here just for a moment because I don't think we can really understand the full uh, theology and significance of that mercy seat until we put it in the context of the Day of Atonement. Uh, that's not described for us here uh, in, in the book of Exodus. Uh, it's described in Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, that's the key chapter that defines for us all the regulations of the uh, Day of Atonement. So let me just make a few, uh, a few comments here, but it becomes an extremely important and vivid picture uh, of the whole work of atonement the whole work of atonement that really consists, uh, if I could summarize it in this way, uh, in two essential, uh, two essential developments. Uh, one we call propitiation and the other we call expiation. We hear these terms uh, thrown around from time to time and I, I think you people uh, understand what's involved in these terms, but let me just uh, review for the sake of it. Uh, these are two essential elements of the atonement. Now, we have, uh, we, we have some uh, theologians that like to argue whether the atoning work of Christ was propitiation or was it expiation. Uh, and, and they will argue one side or the other, and they're missing the point. Uh, it, it was not one or the other, it was both. All right? The work of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, was both a propitiatory work and an expiatory work. Now, when we see what we mean by these terms, I think you'll understand uh, why we must argue and maintain both of those uh, concepts. Propitiation is the Godward effect uh, of the atonement. We talk about propitiation. This is, the, uh, this is the application, the presentation, the effect, if you will, uh, of the atonement as it relates to God. Propitiation means to satisfy, to appease. Uh, here is the appeasement uh, then of the wrath of God against sin. God is a just God. God is a holy God. All of that's being declared here by the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, how is that justice and how is that holiness going to be satisfied in the light of all of man's sin? Uh, God, uh, while He is a forgiving God, uh, and there's no God like unto our God that pardons iniquity and forgives sin, uh, but that pardon and that forgiveness is not capricious. Uh, God is not whimsical uh, in, the, uh, in the forgiving of sin. Uh, he cannot set aside His justice and uh, forgive sin. That must be satisfied. Uh, and it is the atonement then, it is the shedding of the blood uh, of the sacrifice and ultimately the sacrifice of Christ uh, that satisfies the wrath of God against the sin of of those that are going to be forgiven. Uh, it's a peace. So we emphasize then that the atoning work is primarily a Godward work. 
Uh, that's objective. That is outside of ourselves. Uh, it is that which is presented, if you will, unto the Lord, taken in. Here is the picture, that blood of the sacrifice taken right into that uh, very presence of the Lord. And there it is sprinkled upon uh, that mercy seat. Uh, and quieting then the demands of the law. The lid now is quieting the law. Uh, it is satisfied uh, and all is well. Uh, so that's the first part. Uh, and we'll see how that works here in just a moment on the Day of Atonement. That's what we mean by propitiation. It is the Godward effect, uh, if I can put it in those terms, the Godward effect of the atonement. The wrath of God is appeased, it is satisfied uh, against sin. But the corollary to that, uh, then, is expiation. Expiation is the manward result, the manward consequence uh, of that propitiation. Expiation deals, then, with the removal of our guilt, the forgiveness of our sins, uh, the cleansing of our sins, uh, that is the consequence of that propitiation. Because of the Godward effect, then there is a manward benefit uh, that we are going to enjoy. Uh, because that wrath has been satisfied. And expiation then very simply deals with the forgiveness of sins, uh, the washing away, the removal of the guilt uh, of that sin uh, because of the success of the propitiation. God was satisfied, and if God is satisfied, if there is no more wrath against sin, then there will be no execution of punishment against sin, uh, and so the sin is uh, removed, the pardon is given, the forgiveness, uh, the cleansing takes place. So propitiation, Godward, expiation is manward. Now, uh, just remind yourself of what you know takes place then uh, on that day uh, of atonement. Uh, the only day uh, of, the, uh, of the year uh, when there would be any kind of actual approach to this place of the Ark of the Covenant, the place of the mercy seat. Uh, I won't go through all of the uh, particular rigmarole and ritual that took place on the Day of Atonement. Remember, the priest had to take care of his own sins first. Uh, a, lot of a lot of sacrifice going on uh, on the Day of Atonement. And a lot of it had to do with getting the priest himself ready. And this is one of the great built-in obsolescences. Is that a word? Uh, I, I made a word, word up. Uh, that... Uh, can, can you make obsolescence plural? Obsolescences? Can you? Okay, well, then I didn't make it up. It was a good word. There you go. I, I knew more than I thought. Uh, that's good. Uh, but, but, but God built in this into these, lest the people substitute that for the reality. When they saw the priest having to sacrifice for himself, this, this guy himself has problems. Uh, he can't be the real mediator. All right. So I, I'm saying the imperfection in Hebrews picks up on this. Uh, and this is one of the great arguments in the book of Hebrews to show the superiority of the work of Christ over the work of all of the Old Testament priests. They had to do it all the time. See. Uh, this was not what was working. This is not what was doing the job. Uh, but it pointed. Uh, it was a means of pointing to that which was going to do the job. Uh, and that, of course, was the work of Christ. But So after the priest does all of his own stuff to, to take care of his own guilt and whatever before the Lord, we have then uh, the peculiarity uh, of the Day of Atonement, and that involves the two goats. There were two goats that were selected uh, for the sin offering. Uh, one goat was slain, and the other, the authorized version, identifies as the scapegoat. Uh, but they are two pictures, or two parts to the same picture. And this is uh, what I want you to see very graphically, and this became a wonderful sermon 
that was preached year after year to these people uh, concerning what the ultimate uh, Lamb of God was going to uh, was going to accomplish. The one goat was slain, right? You have the leaning uh, on the head of that goat, confessing all of the sins of the people upon that animal. Here is the vicarious substitute uh, now that is going to be slain in behalf of and uh, because of the sin of those people. Uh, that goat is slain. And the high priest then will take the blood of that slain goat uh, and he makes his way into that place uh, behind the veil, that dark place, that inaccessible place, uh, apart, from, uh, apart from the blood. And here the priest goes in and he sprinkles the blood uh, of the slain goat upon the, uh, upon the mercy seat. And then he exits. He exits. This is such a beautiful picture. I think we've dealt with this before, so I'll just be suggestive here. Uh, but remember, as the high priest, uh, as the high priest goes in, before he goes in, he removes all of those, uh, all of his clothes of royalty, uh, all of the uh, the ephod and the breastplate and that uh, long flowing robe with the bells and pomegranates on the uh, on the hymn that he was to wear every day of life uh, as he ministered in the holy place, uh, lest he die. We are told. Uh, but on this day, on this day, all of that evidence of his royalty and all that evidence of his majesty before the people, all of that was removed. Uh, and the priest now dressed in just the simple, pure linen uh, of the what typically was the inner garment. Uh, what, what a humiliation. All right? What a humiliation this was. Here I say is the high priest that every day of life was parading around uh, the congregation of Israel dressed in uh, that royal mitre, that holy turban, and the breastplate, and the ephod, and all of that majestic royalty. Uh, but now he takes it off. Uh, because as he enters in, this, the work of atonement was a work of humiliation. So, it's a work of humiliation. It speaks to us uh, of the incarnation of Christ and the whole work of the, uh, of the atonement. His whole active... Uh, obedience, leaving, uh, as it were, the, uh, the glory of eternity and taking upon himself frail humanity uh, in this entire work of humiliation. And now in that humiliation, the high priest, I say, goes into that place behind the veil uh, and he puts the blood upon the uh, mercy seat and then he exits and then he exits and once he exits, uh, then he'll put on again those royal robes. Uh, now, as a picture of the resurrection, indeed, and the beginning of exaltation, the work well done. Uh, I, I don't want—I don't have to deal with you people uh, like I have to so, so often when I talk about the Day of Atonement. And I grew up here in this. All right? I, I must say, I grew up here in this. I, I, I still—maybe I'm imagining this, but I, I had in my mind here these visions of, of early flannel graph stories uh, right, on the Day of Atonement with this big collective ear of Israel uh, stuck up against the uh, the tent. Uh, listening for the bells and pomegranates, making sure they're jingling and jangling uh, in there just in case uh, the high priest would die, right? Uh, and if the high priest would die, then I never heard this when I was growing up. I must say I was about 40 years old when I heard this for the first time, and I thank the Lord for that, uh, that the high priest also had a rope on his hind leg, right? Uh, so that, uh, so that if, he, if, he happen, if, if the bells happened to stop in there... They could yank him out, 
You see? Have you heard that one? How many have heard that one? You've heard that one. I was 40 years old, I think, before I heard that, and I, I thank the Lord. But I did grow up hearing that collective ear against the, uh, uh, against the, against the tabernacle uh, to, to see whether or not he died in there. And just in case he died, they could, they could haul him out by that rope. <laughs> and and, and I, I asked myself, where does that come from? All right. Where in the world does that come from? And, and, and I, I thought this. This is where I, I'll never forget this. I was 40 years old. I'm saying I, I could have been, who knows, 35 maybe. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm almost 50. Uh, so it's, it's been a little while. But I remember teaching this one time. And, and some kid, you know, some kid that I was teaching just says, what about the rope on the, on the leg? And pulled it on. And says, what, what, what are you talking about? I've never, heard that, I've never heard that in my life. I've never heard that in my life. And, oh, yes, that's in the Bible. I said, well, show me. I've read my Bible more than once. Uh, I, I've never, I have never yet read that. Uh, where, where, where is that? And, and, and the, the sad thing, there's, there's been more folklore and legend associated with the Day of Atonement than, than, than biblical fact. I submit to you, all right, listen, I, I, I submit to you, that there is no way, I don't care how wicked that high priest was, there is no way that a high priest ever died inside uh, the veil. Never. Uh, because this was a picture prophecy. This was not by the virtue of the high priest. You understand? This was a picture prophecy that God ordained to, uh, to point people to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would submit that if there was ever a high priest that died in that place behind the veil, then from that point on, from that point on, there would always be suspicion. And there would always be a lingering doubt whether or not this atonement stuff really works. All right? Does it really work or no? Uh, will, will there ever be a time when that sacrifice is not accepted? God overruled. I submit to you, there was no need for a, a rope on the priest's hind leg. Uh, he would not die. He could not die uh, in that place. Uh, that, that, I don't know where that... What? Hind leg! You never grew up... Doc! That's okay, isn't it? Because, you see, they drag him, they drag him out that way, and that's his... Well, that's that's an old baritism, I guess. I don't. That's I'm reflecting how I grew up. My grandmother used to always tell me, all right. My grandmother says, "You get out of there, or I'm going to yank your hind leg." Your grandmother never told you that. How many ever had a grandmother say, "I'm going to yank your hind leg"? <laughs> you Chad had one because. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I just thought that was I thought that was just common speech, but that's something I fear. Well, actually, I drag the deer by the horns, but that's uh, if you drag a deer by the hind leg, horns get caught in the brain. You don't do that. So, uh, well, now that's that's just strange a strange thought. And, and now I, I learned last night that when I say things, that people in the tape room are talking about me behind my back. And, <laughs> And they're probably wondering what a hind leg is, too. Uh, well, whatever. The I don't know, left leg, right leg, is that better? I don't know. Uh, but I'm saying it never happened. All right? It could not happen. Uh, because this was a picture prophecy that God ordained for this purpose to show the acceptance of the blood of the sacrifice uh, and pointing all to the work of the Lord Jesus. So he goes in and he, puts the, and he comes out. And as he comes out, I submit, there's a picture of the resurrection, the beginning of the exaltation. And now the high priest puts on the royal robes uh, once again uh, in demonstration of the acceptance of that sacrifice. Uh, beautiful, beautiful picture. And then we come to the second goat. And then we come to the second goat. 
what the authorized version translates for us as the scapegoat. And, and there the, uh, the, the sins of the people again are confessed over the head of that animal. Uh, and now he is that scapegoat bearing the sins uh, of the people are taken out, taken out in the wilderness, led out to the wilderness. Uh, and what? You never see it again. You see You'd never see that goat. I don't know what happened to that goat. But I do know this, that goat never again showed up in the camp of Israel. You see the connection? And it's not without significance. It is not without significance that the scapegoat followed the slain goat. Not the other way around. Not the other way around. Because there was propitiation. Because the wrath of God was satisfied, then there was the forgiveness of sin. And that scapegoat represents expiation. The slain goat, propitiation. The, uh, the scapegoat, expiation. Slain, propitiation, God is satisfied, and now the sins are gone. Now, those two goats, I say, are part of the same picture of the atonement. You couldn't have one without the other. You couldn't have one. I submit to you that you could not have the scapegoat without the slain goat. And I say this to you. I say this. That once you had the slain goat, you had the scapegoat. Alright? On the Day of Atonement, those two things were always, uh, they were always linked together. If there is propitiation, there will be expiation. Alright? If there is propitiation, there will be expiation. There is no satisfaction of the wrath of God on the one hand, and then the execution of the wrath of God again on somebody else. You see. Uh, if there is propitiation... Now, you think that through. Uh, you think that through in terms of what the purpose and the design of the atonement is. Uh, if there's one, there's the other. If there's one, there, can there be propitiation without expiation? I submit to you that if there's propitiation without expiation, you don't really have propitiation. Uh, if the wrath is satisfied, then the sin is going to be taken care of. The sin is gone. Uh, and that scapegoat then is taken out, I say, in the wilderness, bearing the sin away. What a beautiful picture that is. That once the blood was shed and once the blood was placed upon that mercy seat, uh, then our sins are gone. When I was a kid, uh, we, we sang this song. I know it's a good song, a little chorus. You ever sing this one? Now, I always think of this on the, when I think of the Day of Atonement and the scapegoat. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. From that. Uh, buried in the deep. Uh, beautiful. Good theology there. And that's exactly what happens. And the scapegoat is a demonstration that our sins and our guilt are gone and they are gone forever when the blood uh, is sprinkled upon the mercy seat. Now, that's a prophecy. All right, That is a prophecy uh, of the work of the... Uh, of the Lord Jesus. Uh, look at Romans chapter 3. Yes. Uh, my, my personal opinion is the scapegoat is not a picture of resurrection. The scapegoat is a picture of expiation. I believe that the exiting, if the entrance of the high priest in the linen simplicity uh, behind the veil. That's a picture of the death of Christ as he takes then his own blood behind the veil uh, and offers the sacrifice unto the Father. Then the exiting of that, he comes back out of the veil, putting on then the royal robes. That, I believe, is a picture of the resurrection. All right? The fact that the high priest came out, that's why he couldn't die in there. See, if you have death without resurrection, you don't have atonement. 
you see. Uh, he had to come out to complete the picture. Uh, so that's, uh, that's where I think the resurrection is. Uh, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And, and I want verse uh, 25, but let's pick it up here. You know this, this, great, uh, this great chapter. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. That word propitiation in verse 25. Uh, that, that word is the same word, and, and I think Paul is certainly playing upon this. We can't see it so much in, uh, in, in the English translation here. Uh, the, the, the Greek... Uh, translation of the Old Testament. Right? We call it the Septuagint. The Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which was the Bible of the early church. All right? You look at most of the quotations of the Hebrew, or of the Old Testament rather, in the New Testament, uh, it is coming directly from the Septuagint. That was the Bible of the early church. That was the Bible that, uh, that Christ uh, referred to uh, in some of his statements that he used, that the apostles over and over again used. Uh, I'm saying that to say this, because this word that Paul uses, that the authorized version translates propitiation here, is the same word that the Septuagint used to translate the mercy seat uh, back in the uh, Old Testament, uh, Old Testament uh, context. So could, could I translate it that way? Whom God hath set forth to be the mercy seat. God has set him forth to be the mercy seat uh, through faith in his blood. Uh, so everything that the mercy seat, everything that the mercy seat uh, symbolized, everything that the mercy seat typified, prophesied, uh, found its ultimate reality uh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the mercy seat. Uh, he is the one that satisfies the wrath of God against my sin. He is the one, therefore, that because the wrath of God is satisfied against my sin, that I can know what it is to see that scapegoat uh, going down the road uh, and, and having my sins completely forgiven and taken away. Uh, he is the mercy seat. Now, other implications uh, of that concerning the, uh, concerning the blood of Christ, uh, you, you look at Hebrews, uh, you look at Hebrews chapter 9 and or we could spend a lot of time uh, here as the Apostle uh, demonstrates unmistakably uh, that all that was going on in that Old Testament, uh, that Old Testament ceremony uh, were uh, nothing but pictures uh, of the uh, work of the Lord Jesus Christ who took His own blood uh, into, the, uh, into the presence uh, of the Father. Uh, I know there's a lot of talk and wonder where the blood of Christ is. What happened to the blood of Christ? Happened to the blood of Christ? Where is it? You have some that talk about a bowl of blood uh, in, uh, in heaven. Don't believe in a bowl of blood uh, in heaven. Uh, but nor do I believe that the uh, blood corrupted uh, in uh, the dirt uh, of Palestine. Part of the resurrection. Right? 
can I just throw something I'll make you think of? I don't want to develop it now because I, I don't want to develop it now. Uh, <laughs> I, I, it's my view, or I can't prove this, but it certainly makes sense to me, that the blood of Christ is in Christ. All right? The blood of Christ is in Christ. He is the mercy seat. He is the mercy seat. Uh, not a bowl of blood. It's part of the resurrection. Uh, the, the resurrected humanity of Christ is a real humanity. All right? the, humanity the resurrected humanity of Christ is a real humanity. Uh, it is not, now, it's a glorified body. It's a glorified body. But don't give me this stuff uh, that, the, that a glorified body doesn't have blood. Where in the world can you get that notion uh, from, uh, from the Scripture anyplace else? Uh, he's the mercy seat, and that's where the blood is. Uh, and, and, and Wesley's, Wesley's, I, I love five bleeding wounds. Uh, he bears, receive, they pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me. I, I don't want to get from that the picture of the blood still oozing from his veins. He's the, uh, the lamb as it had been slain. He bears the wounds. The blood is not still oozing, uh, but the blood is there as an eternal testimony. Uh, eternal testimony of the atoning work that is the foundation of our uh, of our salvation. Well, you see, this can go on from one thing. One thing leads to another, uh, but it's it's all it's all good stuff. It's all good stuff. Well, there's there's the mercy seat. All right, there's the mercy seat. Uh, the climactic piece on the climactic piece of furniture, uh, and it bears witness to the only way then that men can ultimately have any fellowship. Uh, and approach uh, unto the Lord. Now that's, I think, the, the salient points anyway, uh, as far as the tabernacle is concerned. I, I see a great message in the structure of the tabernacle. I see a great message in the furniture of the tabernacle. I certainly see a great message in the ritual that takes place uh, at, at, the, uh, at the tabernacle. Um, how, how far do you want to go? Uh, how far do you want to go in drawing the significance? Yeah, you know, the Lord, you know, be your guide there. Uh, Lord, be your guide. If, if you want to... I don't know. I, I personally have a problem. I don't know if it's a problem. I don't have a problem, but I, I have a difficulty myself getting too, too far beyond these details and trying to figure out, you know, that this socket, because it was pointed this direction, you know, had, had this symbolic and therefore typical significance. I, I've read things that find some kind of a typical message in virtually every thread uh, in the warp and woof of the, uh, of the curtain and everything else. Okay, uh, okay, I'm, I'm not going to uh, throw that aside. But even if you can't, I, don't, don't get yourself bogged down that you missed the keys. All right? Just don't get yourself bogged down where you're trying to use your imagination to figure out what's going on when there are so many things in the tabernacle that are right on the surface, uh, that are right on the surface, that are part of the declared message. And if I can keep coming back to this and saying the purpose of typology, the purpose of typology is to illustrate truths that were already established. Uh, the purpose of typology is a, a, a divinely used analogy to make something clear uh, it's to make something clear, not to make something confused. Uh, I understand that this is called revelation. Again, as I emphasized last week, it's God is revealing me something to me something here. He's not trying to conceal something from me. I don't have to take decoding lessons uh, in order to interpret what the Bible is doing in typology. I think we sometimes try to make it too mysterious and too, uh, too aesthetically complex. Uh, no, it, the purpose of it is to make things clear. Uh, and let, let's just 
but let's look for those clear things. Uh, and wrote a chapter in this book that should come out someday uh, on uh, Christ in, in types and picture prophecies and try to give you some sensible guidelines for... hope you read that book when it comes out. That would be... I want somebody besides my mother to buy this thing. Right? <laughs> That's what I'm looking for. Uh, is kenosis when the uh, high priest took off his garments? Depends on what you mean by kenosis. The question, this is from Phil Owen. I have to repeat the question sometimes. Uh, Phil, Phil Owen's a guest preacher here who should have been preached, doing Sunday school today but refused to do it when asked. Uh, uh, asked if the taking off the, of the high priest what was kenosis. Kenosis is the... See, he's one of these preachers who's thrown around a Greek word see if I know what it is. Uh, that's, that's the word that is used in Philippians uh, when Christ, uh, we are told, emptied himself, as it were, or made himself of no reputation. Uh, so, my, my question then to you is, what, what do you mean by kenosis? Well, I don't believe that he has... Speak in the tie. <laughs> I, I refused to teach this morning because I was asked last night. <laughs> so, so, so when do you think I prepared for this? <laughs> All right, go ahead. He didn't empty himself of his his uh, attributes, his divine attributes. Right. Okay. Uh, kenosis. He didn't empty himself of anything. All right, we think of emptying as getting rid of something. In the incarnation, he got rid of nothing. All right, he got rid of nothing, uh, and th this becomes a theological question. Yeah, he emptied himself, and, and theologians ask the question: What did he empty himself of? That's the wrong question. All right, when the text tells me very clearly that he emptied himself not by getting rid of something, but by taking something. He took the form of a servant. All right. So the, is the, the humanity, the authorized versions uh, rendering of that really is quite uh, is quite on target. Uh, not that he got rid of anything, but he made himself of no reputation. It was the humiliation. All right. It was the humiliation. So yes, if we see that, and I don't like to use the word emptying there. I think it's a, not the right translation. Uh, the removing of the High priestly garments, yes, I think, becomes a picture of that uh, work of humiliation, uh, of the incarnation, and that whole work uh, of active obedience, that whole work of humiliation that uh, ultimately took him right into the place uh, of death. And then the beginning of the exaltation, then as he returns, as he comes back out of that place uh, behind the veil, uh, and then puts on the royal garments. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful picture of that. Yeah. Okay? Other questions? I've heard. This is Kelch. Yes. Okay. Speaking into the tie clip. For the two uh, people that buy these tapes. Okay. Mom and somebody else. <laughs> okay. I, I, I've heard much made of, of the, you know, everything has dimensions regarding the tabernacle. Okay. You know, it's very specific. Except the thickness of the mercy seat, which is said to represent the fact that God's mercy has no measurement, no depth. Is that one of the spurious 
interpretations, or can we get a legitimate blessing from that? <laughs> wait upon you. <laughs> Far be it for me to keep you from getting blessed. And, you know, and here's the thing. All right, here's the thing. I, I pause here as I for once think before I speak. Uh, there have been many times, how can I say this? Uh, I, can, I can look at some of that and I can say, yes, that, that's a wonderful gospel truth. All right, That is a wonderful gospel truth that the Scripture teaches. All right? Uh, and so, therefore, every time I'm reminded of it, I can be blessed from it. All right? uh, is that the reason why I don't have the dimensions, the, the thickness of the mercy seat? Uh, I'm not going to say no, but I, I think not. All right? I think not. Uh, if, you, if you see it there, what, what makes you see it there? All right? What makes you see it there? Um, now, now, we're, now, we're read, now we are getting stuff. Now we are interpreting things on the basis of what is not said. Yeah, that's right. You see, that's, that's an approach a lot of people take. You know, uh, doesn't say. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's. I, I, that's not really what I would call good exegesis. Uh, but uh, I say what, what happens so often. I, I don't have any problems with, with what is being said. Why do we have to go? And I can prove that statement. You see, I can preach that from any number of express, explicit statements in God's Word. So, uh, so, so is it novel then, or is it cute? Why, why do I want to... See, that, that's the thing I have to wonder about. So, be easily blessed, all right? Stay easily blessed. Uh, and, and, I, and I don't want you to start now sitting there and saying, now, where did you get that? And, you know, let's follow. And this is a question of interpretation, but... Um, I don't like drawing. I would just give you this warning. You never want to establish doctrine from types. All right? You never want to establish a doctrine from a type. By very definition, a type is an analogy. If it's analogous, there must be something to which it's analogous too. All right? And it's, it's a, an illustration of a truth that has already been, been established. I think if you look at it from that standpoint, that, that'll put you more on the... Safe line. Now that's a great thought. You know, that's a great thought. But is is that intent? Can I start reading intent out of stuff that's not said? It's a whole bunch of stuff that's not said. And once I start preaching, taking my text from the scripture into places where it doesn't say anything, you know, where's that? That that bothers me a little bit. Okay. Well, thankfully, time is gone. So. Or any other questions? That's good. All right. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, do give our thanks for your goodness to us. We're thankful, Lord, for the Word of God that uh, does reveal to us uh, the eternal and unchangeable truths upon which we can base our eternal destinies. We're thankful, Lord, for the pictures that you give to us of the work of Christ. We're thankful that we have more than pictures. We have the reality for Christ indeed came and he did uh, shed uh, the manifestations of His glory uh, and enter into that place behind the veil. Uh, and as He went, He was our forerunner and He takes us, uh, he takes us with Him. Uh, Lord, we rejoice that uh, we follow uh, into that place uh, in the person of Christ. So give us understanding of this more and more. 
Uh, we pray that you'd bless us now as we enter into the uh, time of worship here. Bless the preaching of the Word to our hearts. Uh, speak to us, Lord, throughout this day, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.